Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, everybody. So good to see you. Uh, Welcome, everybody who's joining online and then everybody who drove through another Sunday snowstorm to get here as well. Uh, Love it. So my name is Nate, if I haven't met you, and it's just an honor that you're here. Hey, we are in our fourth week where we've just been looking at one chapter in the Bible. And I know we're in lots of different places in terms of our own spiritual journeys, but the Bible is typically divided up into books and books are typically written by one author. And then so that we can reference them, this wasn't part of the original, but we put chapters in and verse numbers so that we can find that. This is a Psalm and Psalms were a form of poetry, often known as worship. And the Psalms were often sung out loud. They were repeated, they were memorized, they were reflected on in times of difficulty. And the Psalm that we have been looking at is Psalm 23 which in my estimation would likely be the most well-known chapter in the whole Bible. And even if we haven't read the Bible very often, you've probably at least heard this reference. We often read it in times of crisis, at funerals, things like that. I was just talking to a friend after the last service and he said he grew up in San Francisco, but his dad ran, or his grandpa ran a ranch out in Forsyth. And he said, I remember as a boy coming out and at lunchtime, which they called dinner, all the hired hands came in. We all sat down and my grandpa every single day would quote Psalm 23. And he said, it was kind of my first exposure. So he said, that Psalm has just been a part of my life, like long before I even had a relationship with God. A lot of us would feel that way. Well, here's the beauty of Psalm 23. For 3000 years, people have been reading it, reflecting on it, and it's brought comfort and peace And in large part, it's because here we have King David who has this long history that we've looked at briefly where he grew up as a shepherd, which was culturally seen as one of the more simplistic things that you could do. Shepherds were often looked down upon. He said, I I grew up as a shepherd. And then he has this time when his fighting renown is recognized and he becomes a general and, and just the epitome of what a man would be in that culture. Now he's king. And he says, in in the midst of all the questions I've ever had about God, in the midst of all the challenges that human beings have relating to God, he says, here's kind of the most succinct, clear way that I can describe a human being's relationship with God. And he says, I think of myself as a part of the flock and he's the shepherd. And when I think that way, it just brings comfort. It brings an understanding because here's one of the fundamental questions that human beings have. Do I matter to God? So the first question, which everybody who's watching this, everybody in the room, you've you've all, we've all had to wrestle with the question, is there a God? Okay. And if, if you've come to the conclusion that, yeah, there's a God, the next question, which is just as important as this, do I matter to him? Is he just a God who created the universe and now has backed up? We call this deism. And he's more of an observer of humanity and an observer of what's happening on this planet. Or does he really care? And through this Psalm, David is bringing us into this way of thinking where he's saying, what I've come to realize 
is not only is there a God, but I matter to him. I matter to him deeply. And in the first part of the psalm, he says, the best way I can describe it is my relationship with the flock when I was a shepherd. God's engaged. He's a protector. He's a provider. That He knows sheep by name. That he's, he's never distant. He never abandons them. Now, in verse 5, which we're going to look at together, it, it's going to feel like as we're reading the psalm, like David just took a hard right and you, you're like changing the metaphor because the metaphor was sheep and shepherd. And all of a sudden he's going to say this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Now, for any of us who have had any experience with agriculture, you don't prepare a table for sheep. They can't appreciate it, right? You throw them some fodder. You feed them some grain or some hay and anoint my head with oil. You don't pour oil on a sheep's head. So what is David getting at? Here's what he's getting at. He's going to dive even more deeply into this question. Do I matter to God? And his answer in verse five is going to be, I matter more than most of us are even comfortable admitting. Let's read together. I've invited um, people to memorize this as we go through. We are going through really slowly. We still have one more week because there's a sixth verse, okay? So it, it's, it's not too demanding. In fact, I had a great conversation last week with a young woman. She'd been going through a crisis. Um, I don't think she'd ever been to a service before since last week. And one of our team members met with her and she memorized Psalm 23. And she said, every time I'm getting this anxiety and these fears, I, I just quote that and it stilled my heart. And that's exactly what this Psalm does. Psalm 23, we'll read verses one through five. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here's the verse that we'll look at in particular. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So why is David moving away from this sheep and shepherd metaphor? Well, when we look at it culturally, this is just hard for us to understand. But if we looked at it through a lens of 3,000 years ago for a man who's talking about the sheep shepherd relationship, what we'd realize is he's actually saying God matters, you matter more to God than you anticipated. And he's bringing in the idea of Bedouin hospitality. Okay, Bedouin hospitality. Now, for most of us, that's like a foreign world. There's still Bedouin tribes that exist in Southern Israel, in Syria, North African deserts. And these are these nomadic people that are shepherds for a living, but they don't ever build a permanent city. They move because the land is so sparse. You can't ever say, here's where we live and this is where our, our sheep graze. You have to keep moving in order to find enough sustenance for your flock. And so for thousands of years, these Bedouin people have been wandering through these deserts. And they're this own, they're their own sustainable culture, but just so different than us, they don't ever put down roots anywhere. Here's the first thing that David is saying. He's saying this. He, want to inter, he wants to introduce us to the God of hospitality. The God of incredible and significant hospitality. Now, when I use the word hospitality, 
in our own thinking, how do we think about hospitality? Okay, if, if I was going to say, hey, who's the most hospitable person you know? Maybe someone would come to mind and this is what they do. Oh, they, they like to have people over for dinner and they put out the nice plates when we come and they find all of the matching silverware that can be found. And the cups they use are actually made of glass, right? Hospitality would be, hey, we bring people over for a couple hours and we're really nice to them. So this idea of Bedouin hospitality that David is introducing us to is way, way, way beyond that. We're gonna have to absolutely expand our concepts to understand what David is saying. So I wanna show you the first picture. This is a picture of a actual Bedouin tent. These are still in use. They're made out of black uh, goats. So they're, they're fur or hide tents. And you will find these throughout all the areas where Bedouins have been 3,000 years ago. It appears that they lived in the same type of tents. Now, just for a moment, look at the area surrounding the tent. It's not exactly the place where you'd want to go camping, right? There's, there's no vegetation. There's no water. But this is how Bedouins live. When it's time to move on, when all the vegetation has been eaten up, you pack everything up and you move it to the next place. You may move 30 or 40 miles away. And here's some things about Bedouin culture, which David was familiar with. Uh, Bedouin culture, if there was something that you were admired for, so it's a, it's a culture of honor. You know what brings you to the top in terms of being honored? It's your hospitality. Your hospitality. There is still a Bedouin tribe that lives in the deserts of Syria. And the more, this is how you gain respect. Your Bedouin tent, one of the flaps is always open on one side of the tent, signifying the doors open for hospitality, okay? So it'd be very similar. What if you just left your front door open all the time so that anybody who wanted to come in could come in? This is how you are deemed honorable. You look at the tent flap at a Bedouin tent and the more grease it has on it, the more you're honored in the culture because this is the tradition. After you've been a guest in the Bedouin tent, on your way out of the tent, you wipe the excess food and grease from the meal on the tent flap. And the greasier and grimier it is, the more honored and revered you are in that culture because it means this, you have been a gracious, good host. So Bedouin culture has an honor code called diafa. Diafa, it's an Arabic word. And diafa means this, it means that anyone, anyone who wanders in out of the desert to your tent, that you are required to offer them hospitality for three and one third days. Don't ask me where the one third came from. I don't know. But for three and one third days. And even if, okay, even if this is your mortal enemy, even if there's someone that you've been at war with for decades, if they wander in and they are in need, you are responsible for hosting them. That means you feed them and you feed them elaborately. That means that you give them everything they would need and they come under your protection. So you, you protect them. Even if their enemy is pursuing them and that enemy is your brother, you still have to fight to protect whoever is in your home. They are your guests. They fall under your authority. You are responsible for guarding them from any Right. So this is a, a very different form of hospitality. 
So David is saying something like this. He's saying, I matter to God. Human beings matter to God. God is this loving shepherd. We're vulnerable sheep. But now he's saying, and when I've wandered in from the desert, when I've wandered in from my own failures and, I, and my heartbreaks, I come to God and here's what God has done. He has opened the tent and said, welcome, welcome. Now, David had a life that was filled with ups and downs. I'll talk a little bit about that next week. As a biblical character, I actually like to study him because sometimes we, we have these perspectives that this is what it means to be godly. One of the unique things that God does in describing David is he says this, David was a man after my own heart. So David does, God doesn't recognize David's, you know, brilliance when it comes to military issues. He, he doesn't even comment on his integrity because David's had ups and downs and tragedies and bad mistakes and victories. He says, here's what I see about David. This is why I really revere him is that he's been after my heart, meaning he values the things I value. And that he, he comes back to me. He's, he's after knowing me. And so David says this, in my life, there have been times where I've been wandering in the desert. And as I come forward, Here's what God has done. He's welcomed me with hospitality. He's offered me his protection, even when I have been an enemy of God. He's offered me hospitality and kindness. There's a, a New Testament parallel. In the story of the prodigal son, there's two sons and a father. And the older son is the responsible son, the son who is always striving to make his dad proud. Um, anybody an older son? I'm the oldest of five in my family. And they kind of like look down on everybody, like, hey, quit, you're underperforming, like straighten up. Well, the younger son in this story, he's just a train wreck, right? And basically he's waiting around for his dad to die. But his dad's not dying soon enough. So he goes to his dad and he says this, I'm tired of waiting. I want my share of the inheritance and I want it now. And what, what, what does the father do in the story? Well, you'd think he'd say, no, 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 son. You're not mature enough for that. The father says, okay. And he gives him his portion of the inheritance. And it's exactly what the older son anticipated. My little brother went away and he squandered my dad's resources. In, in this form of living that was defiling and he's more and more broken. And so now you have this younger son. He's burned through all the money. He has made bad decision upon bad decision. And he's at the point of starvation. And it, in his mind, he says, you know what? I'd go back to my dad's house, but I know the choices that I've made, the things I've done, the wilderness that I've chosen to exist in, I could never go back as a son. But maybe, just maybe my dad would take me back as a hired servant. Maybe I could just take care of the corrals and do this sort of thing. And so he's walking back to his father and he's got a speech ready. Dad, I know I betrayed you. I could never expect you to love me again. But while he's still a long ways off, his father sees him and runs to him. Runs to him with open arms. And here's the younger son, filled with shame, filled with regrets. Everything his older brother had ever said about him, he had proven true. 
but his dad embraces him in his arms and he's saying, dad, I, I know I'm unworthy, but could you just give me a meal? Could I just be a servant for you? And his dad says, I'll have none of that. He covers him. He puts a signet ring, which is a symbol of you're now back in the family. And this is before the younger son repents. He hasn't changed his behavior. He's just embraced and loved by this God of gracious hospitality. This is what David is pointing at. David is pointing at this. I can wander in from the desert and the God of hospitality welcomes me in. Before I've changed, before I've cleaned up, before I've even made recompense for all of my mistakes, the God of hospitality welcomes me home. You know what we call this around here? We call it radical grace. In my, my humble opinion, it would be one of the more difficult things for North American followers of Jesus to understand. Because we live in a society that's merit-based, right? If you work harder and do a better job, you might get a raise. If you are productive, you'll get recognition. And so we, we from our youngest age, even in our schooling system, that do more, try harder, you'll be recognized. Here's the crazy thing about the hospitality of God. It is not based upon my moral performance. It's not based upon what I've done right. It's based upon this God who loves us and says, you indeed do matter to me. And what's behind you doesn't mean I can't love you. The failures, it doesn't impact God's loving, gracious hospitality for us. So this God of radical hospitality. Now, David's going to go on and he's going to describe this hospitality in two ways. The first way is this. He says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The table is set. Point number two, the table is Set. So what is happening here? I want to show you a, a couple of pictures. So the first one is one of our missionaries to the Middle East. And you'll notice uh, about 12 o'clock in the picture, his face is blurred out. Okay, his face is blurred out because where he operates, there's safety concerns. So I, I asked him, I said, hey, sh show me a picture of you in a Bedouin tent. This is what he sent me. And you'll notice on that plate, this is not COVID-friendly eating. I just want you to know. I've been in Bedouin tents. Some of you who've traveled to uh, Israel with me, we, we take an afternoon and we visit a Bedouin tent and try to understand all this. So that is a small sheep that has been roasted. And then there's rice and potatoes and, and uh, different breads that are piled around it. And here's how this whole meal would start. So to the left of our missionary, okay, that man is the host of the meal. You know what he does? So when our missionary showed up, he didn't know this family at all. But because of Bedouin hospitality, they literally like stop everything, kill a lamb, roast it. We're having a meal to host you. And so when this is all prepared, the host takes, I don't know, this is gonna make some of us cringe, but he takes a handful of bread and he wraps meat in it and rice in it. And he hands it to everybody at the table as a sign of his hospitality. Right. I'll show you one more picture of a, a Bedouin table. I've been to a couple of events just like this. 
So you all gather around. And here, here's what happens. Bedouins, I mean, it is typically fairly impoverished. If you have a guest, you pull out the stops. You, you, you do everything you can to honor your guests. So David is saying this. My God is a God who has welcomed me. My God is a God who has opened his arms to me and he's prepared a table in front of me. And on that table is everything that I have ever needed in my life. And it's not just about food and nourishment, but whenever I've needed forgiveness, it's there on the table. Whenever I've needed hope, it's there on the table. Whenever I've needed peace, whenever I've been dealing with anxiety or my own failures, here's the nature of God is that he welcomes us in and he prepares a table in front of us where everything that we could ever need is given away. Not earned, but given away as a gift. And David adds this little caveat. He says, he's prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, why is he saying that? So under Bedouin Diapha, you have to protect your guests. So David is saying, I've got people, I've got accusers, I've got a past. I got people that I went to high school with who know all my dark side. I know there are people here that will say this about me, but when I'm sitting at the table of God, I'm protected. I can sit there at peace, all their accusations, all of their threats mean nothing because I am protected by God. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Then David has one more element to this hospitality of God. And it's something that it's really hard for us to understand because it's not a part of our culture whatsoever. But he says, he anoints my head with oil and then my cup overflows. So point number three is this, honored and anointed. Honored and anointed. So what is this anoint my head with oil? I used to read this for many years and thought, well, when David was a boy back in the book of Samuel, and when he became king, the prophet anointed him as king. It was a, a form of uh, like a ritual, you poured oil on somebody's head. But it's a completely different word here in the Hebrew language. You know what this is? This is part of Bedouin culture. It still exists to this day. So one of the most prized possessions for any Bedouin is a stone jar that has a lid that sits on there quite tightly. And when you have to move camp, you're very cautious because the contents within this stone jar are extremely expensive. What it is, is a mixture of olive oil, and different spices, different things that have aromatic properties. And so when you walked into a tent, maybe imagine you've been wandering through the desert for weeks. Your skin has been exposed, you're parched. And if you spent weeks wandering in the desert, you don't smell good either, right? You're bringing all that with you and in a Bedouin society, they'd want to say, hey, let me give you a shower. Showers don't exist. You saw the picture. <laughs> so you know what they do instead of showers? They take this jar and they, they put it on the guest. 
Because the guest smells offensive. The guest has been out in the wilderness just trying to survive and their skin is typically parched. Now in our culture, nobody wants to walk around with a glistening face, right? Like if you smeared olive oil on your face before you came to church today, people would be like, hey, you might wanna, you know. You would not do this for a guest if they came to your house. You meet them at the door and you know, like, they'd be like, what are you doing? I'm anointing you with oil. But in this culture, it's a sign I don't care where you came from. I don't care how bad you smell. Let me cover you. So you walk into the tent of the Bedouin and immediately he says, let's prepare a meal. Everything we have. He says, come here. And he takes this treasured possession of oil and fragrances and begins to massage your face then to cover the odor of your body, the odor of your past begins to put it all over your body so there's no longer any offensive smell that comes from you. David is saying this. There have been times when I've had to drag my way across the desert of failure and I come before God and he says, you're welcome. Come in. I have been waiting for you. I've longed for you. And I know what you're bringing with you. I know the memories of the past. Let me cover you. Let me take away the stench of your failure and your rebellion. The New Testament writers um, pick up on this. That this is part of what Jesus did for humanity. Okay, I, imagine this bookmark represents you, it represents me, every one of us in the room, okay? Every one of us online, this bookmark represents you. Well, the challenge has been this, is without this radical grace of God, the radical hospitality and kindness of God, we're over here and we're always trying to make ourselves better and we're always trying to heal ourselves and become more spiritual and more righteous, but it's, a, it's we can't do it, right? We fail. So. Part of the whole message of the New Testament is this, that Jesus came and became just like us, but lived the life we couldn't live. And then he, through his life, death, and resurrection, makes a way for us. He covers us. So the New Testament writers use this term. They say, we are now in Christ, in Christ. So imagine this Bible represents Jesus Christ. This is you. All of the offenses, all the failures. I can never purge myself of. When I trust that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was for me, it covers me. And now I'm not judged according to my moral behavior. I am in Christ. And when the Father looks down, this is all he sees, someone who is in his Son and he covers the failures of the past. He covers the, the, the garbage and the baggage that I bring into God's world. It's, it's covered in him. A God who's gracious. God who exhibits radical grace. Radical hospitality for human beings that don't deserve it. 
A God who says, I would love to provide for you a table filled with your deepest needs. It's here. It's found in me. And a God who covers us, anoints us, and changes what we've brought into the room into something beautiful. I want to end with these questions. Number one, will I come in from the desert? Will I come in from the desert? So I I want to explore this in two ways. I think a lot of us who do have a relationship with God, uh, you ever notice that sometimes you're a little inconsistent? (laughs) Sometimes we're very intentional and we're following God. And then sometimes we just get distracted and we wander and we wake up one day and you're like, what happened? Like I I was previously living to honor God and now I I just kind of went back to the old me. And then there's another group of us that would say, hey, I've been living in the desert. I've been trying to find a way. I've been trying to make myself better, but I I can't, like I've got all this stuff, I'm broken. Part of becoming a follower of Jesus is your own acknowledgement that you're broken and you cannot fix yourself. So here's my question. Are you too prideful to come into the, from the desert? Are, are you like, no, no, let me, let me get fixed up first. Let me, let me get rid of some of the rough edges. Let me see if I can make myself better. And then, then maybe if I present myself to God, he'd be like, ah, finally, you finally straightened up. Now I can have a relationship. Here's one of the, the beautiful things about radical grace. I firmly believe this. God cannot love you any more than he does right at this moment. Even if you are living your life in opposition to God right now, I believe this, his love for human beings is complete. That's the radical nature of Psalm 23. And there is nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable. The only thing you can do is just show up and surrender. Here I am, I'm coming out of the desert and I'm coming into your house, God, under your protection. I wanna be found in Jesus. Here's the second question. Do I feel like I need to earn God's hospitality? So typically we have this sense of guilt and like, well, God, if I, you know, maybe I could do some work around here and earn my keep or God, I, I really made some mistakes. So let me, it is a gift and a gift cannot be earned. So the table, what God wants to do, the the embrace, the welcome, the forgiveness, it's a gift. And sometimes even religious people, I get caught up in this. Well, like, well, God, I'll do better next time. No, his love is a gift. I cannot earn it. And if you're caught in a cycle of trying to please God and make him happy and maybe then he'll accept you, we're missing out on the message of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Here's the third and final question. Is it, and I put that word in quotations, is it really all there at the table in front of me? So we're we're always pursuing things. Like we're pursuing happiness. We're pursuing contentment. And if I could just have these sort of resources, if I could have these relationships, if um, I could finally have this joy, then I'd be happy. And part of what David is saying is this. He's got it all. He's a king now, right? He oversees an empire. He says, here's what I find. 
the thing that makes me a truly whole functioning human being. The thing that truly brings me contentment is being in my father's house. The table, all the peace, all the hope, all the forgiveness I could ever be in need of, he presents to me as a gift. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.